Well, good morning. How many of you were at the talent show last night? How many of you were not at the talent show last night? Sorry. You, you missed it. Um, Ellen and I were not able to attend. I got word from my twin brother, who is uh, a lot wilder and crazier than I am, that he even got drafted into the finale of the show last night. And I'm, I'm sorry I missed that. That's, that sounded like it was quite something. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's right. I'm glad you threw in an extra hymn this morning instead of our usual three because um, it gave me more time to write the sermon that I'm about to share with you. So excited about that. Um, but, but seriously, though, Bert, one of the things I've really appreciated, and there, this is a long list of things, I mean that very sincerely, but um, this is not a timer. This is a, a hearing device. So some of you are like, if that's a timer, it obviously doesn't work. Why does that guy keep putting it up there? But um, <laughs> one of the things that I appreciate is you don't skip verses in the hymns. Those hymns were written to tell a story, and there's a progression in the plot line of, of the theme um, that's missing in a lot of newer music. And um, I saw a cartoon once, Bert, you've probably seen this too. It said, it said, every worship leader's secret fantasy. And I thought, well, this should be good. And the worship leader stands up and he saw, says, because we're a little short on time today, our pastor will only be sharing points one and three of his sermon. And um, I just thought that's, that's much deserved and probably sweet revenge right there. Tonight we'll finish our series on Barnabas, but I really did come with this morning as just an open slot in my mind. Um, we've talked about Elijah the last couple of mornings, the, the topic of depression, his downward spiral, God's gracious intervention in his lives, in his life. Um, the, this morning, I really wanted to wait and hang out with you all week and just hear comments and hear concerns and then pray and say, Lord, lead me to, to the right passage. It's a message I've shared before, but not for years and years, probably. Um, it's found in Judges chapter 6. If you have your Bible, open it up to Judges chapter 6. Just a few comments about the book of Judges in general before we begin in chapter 6. Joshua is one of the high points of the whole Old Testament. I mean, after Moses leads the people out of bondage in Egypt, after they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, an entire generation dies off. Then we have the book of Joshua, and Moses is dead, Joshua is the new leader, God says, different leader, same God. Watch. And um, the people actually listen to God in the book of Joshua. As a result of that, they experience great success. This book of the law shall not meditate, or shall not, shall not what? Depart. There's that verb I couldn't find. Uh, depart. Depart. <laughs> 
but you sh from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And they do that, at least to more of a degree than normal. Well, as a result of that, they actually go 31 and 1 in major battles. Imagine being on a basketball team and going 31 and 1. Oh, man, so close to undefeated season. It was just that, that battle in I or AI, whichever way you want to pronounce it. Um, and even there, after repentance and God's discipline, they had a victory there, too. It's a great, triumphant book. After that, you turn the page, and here comes Judges. And in Judges, all four wheels fall off of the vehicle. The people learn and forget the same lesson over and over and over again. The key word for the book is cycles. They're just spinning their wheels. The people ignore God. They get comfortable and complacent now that they're in the promised land, and they don't need him so much anymore. It's a lot like our country, to be perfectly honest. And so then they begin, they get really sloppy. They, they marry people that don't share their faith and values. They don't fully obey God. They sort of obey God. And as a result, God allows foreign enemies to crop up on Israel's boundaries, and they begin pushing in. The people then, oh, now God has their attention. And they pray, and they haven't prayed much, so their prayers are pretty simple. They kind of consist of, help! And God raises up a judge, not like Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or whoever your favorite judge is, um, but a military judge who rallies an army, pushes the enemy back, and the people say, oh, Lord, it's good to know you're there in an emergency. My people will call your people. We ought to get together more often. We really should, Lord. Um, and then they get comfortable. After a time of peace, the whole cycle repeats itself again. You know some of these judges, some of them, their names sound funny to us. This is a familiar judge in Judges chapter 6. His name is Gideon. Uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to share this message today is I've met several Gideons this week. If you're a Gideon, raise your hand, will you please? Keep, keep them up there. Yeah, so encouraging, so encouraging. Gideons do great work. They do great work. Gideons need to recruit some younger men and women, too. Amen. So uh, if you are a Gideon or you've appreciated the ministry of the Gideons and you know a young man or woman with a heart for God's word, I would encourage you to steer them toward the Gideons because it's too important to work to die with this generation. Um, I, I, I love the ministry of the Gideons. One time I was, I was speaking someplace, and I, I just made the point that I've never met anybody who came to faith in Jesus all by themselves. I hadn't really thought that comment through. May have been a little bit of an overstatement, but I'm not so sure. This gentleman comes up. He's wearing a really, you could just tell it was an expensive suit, okay? It had been, like, sewn on his body, and um, he introduced himself, and, and he says, I, I enjoyed your message. He says, I don't want to ruin what you said, but he says, I, I came to Jesus all by myself. Nobody helped me. And I said, tell me your story. And he said, well, he says, I just had my 
second marriage had ended in divorce like my first one. I was married, and this one wasn't going too well either. And he says, business-wise, no problem there. I own five different companies. And he says, I was traveling on business, and I was staying in a hotel, and he says, I was seriously considering ending my life. Because even with the success in business, it didn't offset the failure in my personal life. And he says, it was the weirdest thing. He says, he says I, I opened up the drawer next to my bed, and he says, somebody had left a Bible there. Like they just forgot it in the room. And I go, really? And my mind is already way ahead, right? And, and so, so I, he told me, and he says it was, I'd seen the Bible before. I'd never really read it. He goes, this one actually had some instructions in it besides the Bible part that explain how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and have your sins forgiven. And he says, with nobody there to help me, I just knelt by my bed and I asked God to forgive my sins. I said, that's a great story. And we hugged each other and, and he says, so it is great. And he says, I, I still struggle sometimes. God actually reconciled that third marriage. She's a follower of Jesus Christ too. And I said, that's fantastic. And he said, but anyway, you can't ever say again that you know some people don't do it all by themselves. And I said, uh, yeah, about that. I said, um, do you remember that Bible? He goes, yeah, I still have it. And I, I, said, I said, was there like a kind of a, look like maybe like a clay pot on the front with a circle around it? He goes, oh. he, ju he just, I mean, he, like the blood faded. And he goes, how in the world did you know that? And I said, that Bible was not left there by accident. And I said, it's a group called the Gideons. And he goes, that's exactly right. That's what it said in there. It didn't have anybody's name, but that's where they had gotten the Bible, evidently, was from this group. And I told him how the Gideons worked. And I said, you know, somebody gave the money for that Bible. They had a hand in your salvation. Somebody volunteered with the Gideons, placed that Bible there. Somebody talked with the manager of that hotel chain and got them to agree with that. And I gave about four more examples. And I said, is there anybody in your family before you who was a Christian? And he goes, no, not in my family. He goes, I'd already told you I made a mess of my family. I said, what about the family you grew up in? No. And he stops and he goes, well, he goes, there was my grandma. He goes, my grandma would always just put her hand on my cheek and say, I pray for you every day that you'll come to know. And then he just stopped. And he goes, that's exactly my problem, isn't it? I think I do everything by myself. And he just, he just gave me the biggest hug. I've, I've never forgotten that conversation. That was so cool. Gideon. We know a little bit about him because he's in Veggie Tales, and we learned about him in Sunday school. Again, someday I'm going to do a whole series on kid stuff, and we're going to take a, a second look at the stories we learned as children because we didn't get to hear all the story. We know he rallies an army, I mean, against all odds. Um, they, they go into battle. God actually whittles their army down, even though they're severely outmanned. He says, there's too many of you. If you fight this way, you'll think you deserve the credit and glory. And, and then they win this great victory. 
Gideon is so thrilled what God's done that he spends the rest of his life traveling throughout Israel, really throughout the whole world. Wherever he stays, he leaves a Bible in the hotel room. You know his story from Judges chapter 6. But like many times, we only tell part of the story. And as a result of that, we come to the wrong conclusion that these guys, these men and women in Scripture are just kind of like bionic believers or something. They're like, they're like super saints who never struggle like us. If you read the full story, most times you find out, wow, we're a lot more like them than we ever thought. Book of Judges ends 21-25. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Aren't you glad you don't live in a world like that? I mean, it must have been terrible back then. I bet they had to take a Gallup poll to decide if something was moral or immoral. I bet there was no unified, absolute truth. Sure glad we've grown past that, especially in our country. You realize the book of Judges is America today, I believe. Well, let's pick up the story with this life of Gideon. See, I don't even have notes because I told you I didn't plan on talking about this today. So thankfully, through the miracle of technology, I could tap into our database and I found this one. And man, the font on this looks old because I did this message a long time ago and haven't freshened it since. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Just stop there a minute. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. A wine press was where they would take the grapes, squish them, get the liquid out of them, and pr produce their wine. I've never been a farmer, but I have a lot of relatives who are farmers. We would go out to Nebraska usually every other year to Shirley and Leroy's place. He was a wheat farmer. I'm sure we were a big help to him out there, but we thought we were, and he let us drive things around, and it was pretty cool, actually. But um, he, he, Leroy, we'd walk through the wheat farm, and he'd take some wheat, and he'd go like this, and then he'd go and blow away the chaff. And then he'd put a bunch in his mouth, and he'd hear Philip take some. Doesn't that taste good? And yeah, if you bite down, you'll crack your teeth. That, wheat's, wheat's hard. And then I didn't taste anything except the dust. And I'd wait till Leroy looked over to see what weather was coming, and I'd quietly spit it out, and I'd keep my tongue in the side of my mouth for 15 minutes like he had the wheat in his mouth. Um, one time we were in a bin together. And it wasn't like a big accident happened, but it was, it was soon after they had dumped a bunch of grain in there and he was raking some of it from the side. That grain dust will just choke you. You don't beat out wheat in a wine press. It's an enclosed place. You need to open air to be up on a hill is a good idea so that the cross breeze will separate the wheat from the chaff. Why is he in a wine press? Well, the verse, next verse tells us um, he was doing that to keep it from the Midianites. The Midianites were the enemy du jour. They didn't just come in and conquer the Israelites. They would let the Israelites plant the crop, and then Midianites would come in and harvest it. 
And scholars tell us that they would carry back all that they could back to their homeland and the rest they would burn. So the nation was brought very low through this experience, God's people, the Israelites. Here's Gideon, and, and he's beating out wheat, and he's doing it, I think, in, in hiding, in secret. And can't you imagine probably the dilemma that's in his mind? We need to eat this wheat to survive. But if we eat this wheat, then we won't have anything to plant, and then we'll have no harvest next year, but why plant it? Because the Midianites are kind of, and all of this is probably going around in his mind. That work is hard enough, but when you're as discouraged as he must have been, it had to be appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. If I'm Gideon, I'm looking around and going, don't see any mighty warrior here. Maybe you mean Hezekiah. He lives like three farms down. He's still got faith, not me. That's a paraphrase. It's all in the Hebrew. You don't see it in your English Bible. So. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? How many have asked God that question? Probably the vast majority of us have. He doesn't stop there. Where are all of his wonders that our fathers told us about? When they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Doesn't part of you just long to not just read about church history, but live a little bit of church history? I mean, our hearts beat fast when you read these stories in the Bible, but then we'll still get in our cars most of you tomorrow, us late tonight, and drive off the property, and it's like, and back to real life. I think this passage is instructive to us because if you take the easy way of Gideon's life, you just think he just somehow just had all this mega faith, and we don't, and that's the problem. He struggles mightily, and you're going to see it in this passage. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, remember the word but, always a contrast. Here God is calling him, but, 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 but. Who's this remind you of? Another Bible character in the Old Testament. Moses, yeah. That, that series back there on um, rescue, we did it. Um, I said, make it look like it's a conversation between Moses and God, because it was. And our designer goes, oh, I put it in text boxes like they were talking on their iPhone. And I go, that's brilliant, actually. And every question Moses asks, God answers. And God is so patient with him. And eventually, Moses is out of legit questions, and he just goes, just pick somebody else. And then it says, the anger of the Lord burned against him. But as long as he was wanting his sincere questions addressed. God was willing to talk to him for a long time about it. Go in this your strength, save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. 
Now, his objection was, I'm from the wrong clan. I'm from the wrong tribe. I'm even in, even in my extended family. I'm, I'm the least of them. Lord, you, you're just picking the wrong person. He felt inadequate. We'll talk about that in a second, but you ever feel inadequate? I'd have you raise your hands, but it would look like an armpit convention. There'd be so many of us who would raise our hands. I used to think that that disqualified me from ministry. Now I think it's actually a prerequisite to serve God. His strength is perfected in what? Our weakness, right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. There's words there's different words for dishes in the Bible. I mean, there are words for fancy dishes. This is not them. This is the everyday stuff. This is a common, ordinary clay pot. In our house, we have the china cabinet. Guess what lives in the china cabinet? The china. Are you facing the same thing with your kids? They have no interest in having china. They didn't really want it for their own wedding. They sure don't want an extra set. And so where's all that stuff going to go? We, we walk past the China ca- cabinet a few times a year, and we go, hello, China. Are there still eight of you in there each? Oh, no, that's right. I, I, I broke one our first Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. Once or twice a year, we might break those things out. And Ellen is so happy when we do that. And the kids and I are so paranoid during the meal, and there's extra utensils there. It's like, am I removing a gallbladder, or are we eating turkey here? What, what are all of these things? And we also, for our wedding, receive Corel. You know Corel? Oh, man. And then we bought an extra set of four more Corel at a garage sale once. for the whole deal. It was a sweet deal. And even the pattern matched. Our son one time, we had a a tile kitchen floor, and he one time took a plate out and he accidentally dropped it. And I don't know how this happened. It just hit and like bounced up and he caught it. (laughs) And he's like, Dad, that's so cool. He tried it again and then he did it. And then he climbed up on the counter. He wanted to see, I'm like, no, do not do that. We found out later when one of them broke, it's like you're going to spend two weeks finding shrapnel in all the tiny places. It will break. But when it did, nobody cried. That's the idea here. Everyday clay pots, ordinary clay pots. And we have this treasure inside of us, and those, those clay pots have fault lines so that the surpassing glory of what's inside will come shining through. Because it's like, imagine if you're like a master artist like Van Gogh or somebody like that, and, and, and you, you get to go to the museum now, you get to come back to life, and, and there's all the people, and there's people standing around, they're going, look at that frame. <laughs> Whoever made that frame is a genius. And you're so enamored with the frame, you miss the masterpiece. God's too wise to do that. So he puts his surpassing glory, the word of God in us, 
even with our faults, so his glory will come shining through. Most of us here wouldn't say, I'm in the wrong tribe, I'm from the wrong clan, I'm the least in my clan, but we all have reasons why we feel inadequate. I told you before that in our first church, while they're counting the ballots, they go, how old are you again? And I go, 26. 26? I used to be too young. We've taken care of that now. I used to be too skinny. Doctor had me on Ovaltine three times a day. I think it lodged in my liver, and I've got a pretty good class action lawsuit if any of you want to join me in that. I mean, we all, we all have, I'm not good at this. Moses says, I've never been a smooth talker. We all have reasons why we feel inadequate. And one of the three truths that I want you to see today is this. God calls inadequate people to incredible ministries. Say that with me. God calls... Say it one more time. So that which you feel makes you less than sufficient is exactly what makes us aware of our need of the Lord's help. And it releases his power through us rather than our own strength. Oh, there's so much more than that in here. Verse 25. So he's going to do it. That same night. Oh, by the way, I read right past it. Um, I read right past it. No, it's right here. Never mind. See, you're not the only one who mixes. Have I done this verse or haven't I? We all do that. Relax. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. I'd never noticed that detail. Before he sends him to the nation, start with your own backyard. How many of you here would agree with me that the toughest people to be bold with with your faith are oftentimes our own relatives oh man then verse 26 build a proper kind of altar to the lord your god on the top of this height using the wood of the asherah pole that you cut down offer the second bull as a burnt offering so gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the lord told him but, contrast, because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town. Notice the order there. It's significant. The family, worst fear, and the men of the town. He did it when? Rather than in the daytime. I heard several sermons about that growing up. Half faith is no faith at all. I mean, in the Westerns, it's, it's you know... Showdown at the OK Corral at noon. You don't sneak around by night. Here, what, what a man of half faith. It's amazing God did anything through him. Only trouble is you can't find any hint of condemnation about that in the scripture. It's almost like God goes, not a bad idea. Let's, let's, let's be careful about reading into scripture on things like that. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished. 
with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They ask each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, Gideon's dad, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Maybe Baal's anger will be appeased if we offer the offender as a sacrifice and the rest of us will still experience fertility with our crops and our families. He shouldn't have done it. It's a small price to pay. Let's kill him. This next part I think is so cool. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you, this is the dad. It's his altar. So he's not exactly like some you know, spiritual giant. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his widow altar. Again, I've added that emphasis. So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down his altar. Where did the dad all of a sudden get this faith? He caught it from his son. And that goes back to the fact that Gideon felt inadequate for the task. And it's like his dad goes, if my son's doing this, wow. He must have heard from God because this is not native to his personality. God's getting the glory. I believe this part of the story teaches us this second lesson. God calls fearful people to faithful ministries. Say that with me. God calls fearful people to faithful ministries. Good. What are you afraid of? We, we all have different phobias. Stinging, stinging life forms are high on my list. I was once painting a house with some high school friends. We were making good money one summer painting brand new houses. I look back on it now, and we, we would paint the entire outside of the house. The, the builder bought the paint, but we do all the outside of the house for $400. And I wish I could find somebody to just paint the trim on our house for that. At one point, I got into, I, I still don't know, was it wasps or hornets or what? It wasn't regular bees. And um, I, there was a nest right up around, and they started going crazy. And I, I jumped off two stories of scaffolding. Messed up my ankle a little bit, could have been a whole lot worse, but I didn't care, because those things scare me to death. They're, they're not my biggest fear. Growing up, my number one fear, without a doubt, was public speaking. High school, we had to give a speech about how to do something. I, I remember, I remember, my dad showed me, you, the way we peel oranges in our family is really cool. You should do a speech on that. I'm like, wow. Instead, this is a true story. I walked up to the front of class and nobody knew I had that fear because I always sat in the back row and I was always cutting up and making other people laugh and usually getting them in trouble. 
It was a great life. <laughs> but I, I walked up front. I sat down a cassette recorder again. They're in museums. You can see them. Um, and I set it down, and I pressed play, and I went and sat down. And my speech was on how to give a speech without having to stand up in front of class. And it was funny. It was funny. And people laughed. And at, at, when it was all over, we got this evaluation form, and the teacher had given me an A minus. And I was secretly thrilled, but because I was minus. And she didn't miss a beat. She goes, your eye contact and your gestures were totally lacking. <laughs> okay. College, I took a mass persuasion class instead of speech. Went to Dallas Seminary. I, by then, had started leading some small group Bible studies. But there's no way I ever wanted to stand up and preach. I'd be an associate pastor. I was good at motivating people. And, and then we had our first preaching class. How I thought I could get in and out of seminary and never have to preach, I don't know. And it, and it wasn't even a normal preaching situation. You had like 10 minutes, which is my intro, right? And, um, you know, so I'm standing behind the lectern, and in the back room is, is glass, kind of like here, only it was much closer. And the professor would sit behind the bulletproof glass. And as you're preaching, the professor is adding commentary to your message. You can't hear it when you're in there. Nobody can. But you're supposed to go later to the preaching lab. Isn't that just nothing scary about where Frankenstein became your pastor? And um, if you were married, you had to take your spouse. They had his and hers matching headphones. Ellen's got her set on it, and I'm preaching my heart out through the left ear. And then occasionally, the, the first professor was Bill Lawrence, and he would say things like, Phil, that's the sixth time you've scratched your nose, and we're still in the introduction. Does it really itch? <laughs> or is that just a habit? Fill this, fill that, fill that. I still remember, even, even my last one, we had to do like, seven of these during the years I was there. And they added them all to the same tape so that you can hopefully see progress. Hopefully. The, the last one, the professor had said to me, if you don't take a step out from behind that lectern, I'm going to knock you down two whole grade levels. Because you're just, I mean... And so finally, about two-thirds of the way through my message, he came out of the bulletproof glass. My nose really does scratch, just a second. It, it, it really did, sorry. And, and he just puts his hands on his hips. And so and the rest of my classmates had heard him make that threat. And so I got really free, and I stepped out here, and I went, cuckoo, and I came back. And he nods, and that was good. As, as long as I could keep physical contact with this, it was like I was playing first base or something, you know? And that final message was a pretty good message. I had a great introduction. I had done solid Bible study through it. I just hadn't come up with a conclusion yet. And many times the conclusion of my messages was something great like, and now may the Holy Spirit apply this to your lives. 
And it's as if God says, that's why I've had you there the past 30 minutes. I wanted to do that through you. Well, when we went and watched the tape, I, I was horrified when I heard this, and Ellen was with me. All of a sudden, the, the voice of the professor goes, Phil, a sermon is a lot like an airplane flight. Two crucial events are takeoff and landing. Your takeoff was great. You had us. We were all on board. Well, it's been a good flight, a little turbulence around that one word study. I might want you to take another look at that and make sure that that's really accurate. But Phil, landings are important too. And I'm listening to you now. This is now our third time around the airport. Can you hear your engine? Ah, you're running down. And it's like, it's like, okay, okay, this is, he's going to land it here. And then, ah, no, one more thing. Finally, he comes on, he goes, tower to pilot, tower to pilot, land the plane, land the plane now, Phil. <laughs> I still hear that voice sometimes when I'm preaching. No kidding. Don't you be the ones to say that. Our church for a while decided it was a great idea that while you were preaching, there was an iPad there and people could text questions to you. <laughs> I'm ADD enough that that was just like too much for me, especially when my kids would be home from college. One time Philip texted, land the plane, land the plane now, dad. <laughs> We're never going to beat the Methodist to the restaurant. Land the plane now. I'm like, can you ground a college kid? I don't know. Number one fear, especially standing in front of a group like this that knows the word. Of I wrote my daughter yesterday. She's very much an introvert like I am, and and um, she calls places like this Jesus Camp. She goes, how are you and mom doing at Jesus Camp? And I said, all right. I said, hon, God still keeps forgetting that I'm an introvert. Don't misunderstand. Some people think introverts don't like people. I love people. But I need my downtime, too. My wife, the extrovert, she went to breakfast today. I just needed some quiet time in the room. I heard her coming back from breakfast. Our window was open, and I heard her whole series of conversations with different ones of you, and I just sat in our room, and I just laughed. I'm like, she's never going to make it back to our room because she's talking to all her brand-new friends. What are you afraid of? Is it trust in God with your finances? Is it now your years without your spouse? I was stunned last night when someone asked, how many widows are here? And so many of you raised your hands, and widowers too. That can be a fearful time. Whatever that fear is, God calls fearful people to faithful ministries. Well, verse 33 all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon said to God, Just wait a minute, time out. 
If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If I get up in the morning and the fleece is wet, even though the ground is dry, I'll know you have sent me. What's he do? He takes a sheepskin, he puts it in the middle of the threshing floor, he goes to bed. It's a test. We call it laying out a fleece. This is where it comes from. If the fleece is wet, even though the ground's dry, I'll take that as confirmation that I didn't just have a pizza with too many spicy ingredients. I really have heard from you, Lord. And that's exactly what God does. Gets up in the morning. In our walk through the Old Testament, this is a hand sign for Gideon. <laughs> now what? look what happens next. Go, go ahead a little bit. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. <laughs> God is so patient. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. In other words, flip-flop it. Now there's different views of this. Some people, probably the majority, just say that, that Gideon is, he just needs a second confirmation. That's probably true. There's another group, smaller group. Some of you are the math and science nerds like me, and we may have come up with a, national, a, a, a natural explanation for this phenomenon. The fleece, which was more dense, may have evaporated more slowly than the rest of the ground. How many of you would think like that? Any engineer types in here? All right, yes, me too. Some of you are going, I don't even understand that. I just know that Jedediah next door has a big dog that's never on the leash, and he, 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 he never know where he squatted, but there's no way he's going to irrigate the whole yard and miss the fleece. Now, you can hold either of those views you want. Don't split a church over that. I've seen churches split over stupider things than that. But for whatever reason, Gideon goes, God, do it again, but flip-flop it. The fascinating thing to me is God goes, okay. That night God did so, only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Keep going. Here's this point. God calls doubting people to daring ministries. Say that one with me. God calls Good. I mentioned earlier the church I grew up in, doubts were verboten. Ushers would take you out because you would weaken the herd. One bad apple can spoil the whole group. And so none of us ever expressed our doubts because we didn't want to appear weak and we didn't want to make other people stumble. I'm so glad God transplanted me in different soil where Doubts were not only allowed, questions were not only allowed, they were actually encouraged. Earlier this summer, I was speaking um, at another conference center, and Josh McDowell was the other speaker. He's, uh, he had his 84th birthday while we were there, I believe. He can still bring it. It's amazing. God used his writings, especially evidence that demands a verdict and more than a carpenter in huge ways in my life. 
Somebody gave me those books and said, you know, it's okay to think. There are answers. You, you can't logic someone into a corner and they'll automatically go, okay, I believe. I trust Jesus as Savior. It's still a step of faith to believe, is it not? But there's a rational foundation for things like the reliability and the uniqueness of Scripture the fact that Jesus did come and live on this planet, even the resurrection, there's a lot of great evidence for that. By, by the way, if, if you think about it, will you, will you pray for Ellen and me um, next Easter? Um, in Jerusalem, there's a place called the Garden Tomb. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. Likely not the tomb Jesus was actually buried in. But it's in a beautiful garden setting, and, and it, it probably looked a lot like that. And even the people who operate the garden tomb, who happen to all be British, it was discovered by a Brit back in the 1800s, um, they don't even say, this is the place, right? But they do say, this is a beautiful place to come and contemplate the reality of the resurrection. Each year they have an Easter sunrise service, and they've always, 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 always had a Brit do it. And this year they decided to ask, as they call it, a bloody colonist, and that colonist is me. And the cool part about it, besides getting to minister to probably a couple thousand people that morning who are there from all over the world, is that CBN then broadcasts this um, live all over the place. And so it's going to be just an incredibly rare chance to share the gospel to probably more people than I've ever had the chance to share with at one time. So if you'd pray about that and maybe even, even tune in when the time comes and be praying that day because it will be on live here. If you want to see it live, it'll be like 2 in the morning or something. But um, yeah, they'll also show it again during the day. But the fact of me sharing about the resurrection when I just didn't believe that could ever be true. And Josh's books helped me to go, whoa, you can be intellectually sound and also be a person of faith. In fact, it goes together very, very well if we do that with integrity. Think about these three points. Here they all are on the screen. God calls inadequate people to incredible ministries. When you feel inadequate, that doesn't disqualify you. I believe that's God's stated preference because inadequate people recognize we're insufficient. I, my daughter, one of the first verses she learned was, I can do all things, Philippians 4.13. And we'd go, and... I can do all things. Keep going. I can do all things. No, no, honey, Emily, there's more to the verse than that. Through Christ who strengthens me. Without him, we can do nothing. So inadequacy is actually a prerequisite, not a disqualifier. God calls fearful people to faithful ministries. Whatever you are most afraid of right now is the opportunity for God to infuse you with faith and meet you at that point of need. And he calls doubting people to daring ministries. 
Because you know what? There's nothing more dangerous than a guy like Josh McDowell who set out to prove that none of it was true and got convinced that it was. You think he's ever fearful? Not a chance. He's bold as can be. Because he's like, bring on. He's done more debates on college campuses than just about anybody else in our generation. He never flinches at that because he's like, is that all you got? I got better arguments for your side than you have. You need to also ask this question and this question and this question. Oh, well, all right, I will. I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to end this service in a different way. Not a closing prayer. Not a benediction. I like it when people speak truth to each other. Will you stand up for a minute with me, please? I want you to find a person near you. You can be in a group of three if that's how it, it works out. Nobody should be alone because talking to yourself doesn't work very well. I talk to myself a lot. That's okay, except when we have an argument. That doesn't go well. I want you to turn toward that person, and if you're comfortable, either take their hands or, or if you're comfortable, put your hands on their shoulders. Some of you husbands and wives, you haven't spoken yet this morning. This will be a... This will be a good chance to get your day started right. And I would like to say some phrases, and I'd like you to repeat that phrase, speaking into the eyes of the person or people with you, okay? So you've got to make eye contact, too. This is, this is introvert hell right here, man. This is, this is scary stuff. Many of you are looking at me. Don't look at me. It freaks me out at a wedding rehearsal and we're going through the vows and the couple's looking at me and I'm like, not interested. Talk to each other, okay? So here we go. You remind me of Gideon. You're really a lot like him. Please remember, God calls inadequate people to incredible ministries. God calls fearful people to faithful ministries. God calls doubting people to daring ministries. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through you. Amen.